just uh, bow our heads and uh, look to the Lord for help in our uh, hour together. Uh, Father, we're very mindful uh, that you are faithful and that you are great. And uh, we want to get a sense of that, not just in our singing, but as we uh, study the scriptures together, see something of your greatness and your faithfulness and to be encouraged by it. And uh, Lord, we, we need encouragement. These are difficult days challenging days and we pray that you might encourage us from your precious word and bless us as we sit under the sound of it together in this evening hour in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at the book of Zechariah for the next two nights and if you don't know where Zechariah is, find Matthew and then go backwards and you won't be long before you find your way to Zechariah. And I'm going to read from the third chapter this evening, and tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to look at the fourth chapter. There's a lot of chapters we could look at, but I'm going to be selective here, and there's a reason for that, but I want to look at chapters three and chapter four. So we're going to read chapter three together, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about who Zechariah is and what the purpose of this uh, this, uh, this, this book is about, and, uh, and then we'll look at this chapter in a little bit of detail. So it begins this way in verse 1. This is Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan... The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I'll bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. And God always blesses the reading from his precious word. I'm sure it's going to be a blessing to us this evening. So as we look at Joshua, okay, one of, uh, or Zechariah, should I say. Uh, I want to just think, when you're looking at a book like Zechariah, first thing you want to do is read through it. It always helps. And look for the words that the Holy Spirit repeats over and over again. And as you go through this book, you'll find that one of the words that's used over 40 times is the word Jerusalem. And, of course, Jerusalem is a very important place in the Bible, isn't it? Uh, it's the center of, really, uh, the earth. Really, it is the center. According to Ezekiel, it really is. This, I know you probably think mine at North Dakota is the center of the universe. But it isn't. Jerusalem is. And, and so, uh, it's very significant. That this place, Jerusalem, mentioned 40 times. And then the Lord of hosts is mentioned 50 times. And the Lord of hosts is uh, it literally is the idea of Lord of Armies. And, and, and kind of the whole idea of this is that the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of Armies, uh, he is wanting to bless Jerusalem again. Uh, if you look at chapter 1, verse 14, you'll notice it says this, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of Hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. 
That's quite a statement, isn't it? The Lord is saying, I am, I am jealous for Jerusalem. Uh, 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 so, uh, there's a thing you know, down in Texas, they'll say this, don't mess with Texas. Right? Uh, if you ever heard that. Well, <laughs> let me just say this. What God is saying is, don't mess with Jerusalem. Because the Lord of hosts is jealous for Jerusalem. In fact, later on in this very book, he'll say, uh, you know, that, that if you meddle with Jerusalem, <laughs> you're in serious trouble if you dare to do that. And so, uh, it really is a very important city. And so, what, when did this man Zechariah minister? Well, he, he ministered along with another prophet, Haggai. Or Haggai, I don't know how you say Haggai, Haggai, whatever you want to say. And Zechariah, they, they were ministered together. Zechariah was a younger one of the two. But they actually team taught. It's kind of interesting as you look at the dating. They, they team taught together. And often when God works in, in amazing ways, he often uses two individuals. Uh, right? Everything's conformed, confirmed in the mouth of two witnesses. So in the last days, there's going to be two witnesses that are going to stand up against Antichrist, right? And, and in church history, we've often had uh, men working alongside each other. The great Wesleyan revival. You had Wesley and Whitfield ministering together at the same time, a twofold witness that God used. Uh, tremendous to see this. So these two prophets, they're what we call post-exilic prophets. That sounds really a mouthful, but it means simply this, that they ministered after the 70 years when Israel were in exile. Remember, Israel sinned so bad that they actually out the Canaanites. Remember when God kicked the Canaanites out of the land? They said, the land vomits you out. Well, when God's people, Israel, actually were worse than the Canaanites, what, what has God left to do? Right? He's no option but to, to be consistent because he's not a respecter of persons. And so if he did it to the Canaanites, he did it to the people of God. And the land vomited them out. And so for 70 years, the land was kept clear and they were in exile in Babylon. After 70 years, God had promised through Jeremiah that they could come back to the land. And a lot of them didn't want to come back to the land. Some did. A remnant came back. Some kind of settled down in Babylon and they kind of liked it. And the book of Esther set with those that stayed behind, right? They, they settled uh, in captivity. But there were those that came back and, of course, they were given a, a special king called Cyrus who God even prophesied of this man's existence before he was born in the book of Isaiah said that somebody called Cyrus would commission the rebuilding of the temple and send them back. And so they've gone back and the events in this book fit in, in the, the, the gap between Ezra 5 and 6. And this is where it fits when, when the, the, the captives have come back. And I want us to go look at Ezra just for a second. Keep your finger in Zechariah. But I want you just to see exactly where uh, these prophets, Haggai and, Zechari- and, and Zechariah, fit. So notice uh, in chapter 4 of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, it says, Then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what happens is they, they went back, uh, this, this group uh, uh, of exiles, they went back to the land, and of course, they went back to, to the land of Israel, but remember the land of Israel had been devastated by the Babylonians. So it would be like going back to, to, to somewhere like one of these cities in Ukraine that have just been completely decimated. Like this is not an appealing thing to go home. It's not going home to how it used to be. It's going home to a, a city that's just laid waste. And so maybe that's why a lot of people didn't volunteer to go back because you go back there, you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of clearing of land. You've got to sort out all the mess. And, and even building a temple is going to be challenging. And, and so they went back and the first thing they did is they laid the foundation for the temple. But then there was some opposition, a tremendous opposition. And of course, whenever somebody tries to build for God, especially concerning the house of God, you can expect 
that there will be opposition. And there was opposition. And because of the opposition, we get this verse, then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. Because the opposition was so great, including letters from a, a subsequent king. Uh, verse 23, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes, this again is in, in Ezra uh, chapter 4, verse 23. The uh, letter was read before Rehum and uh, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions. They went up in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. So then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So all we've got is a foundation. We've got no house of God built. It's just left in its foundation stage. And where do we go from here? Everything looks a mess. We've come back. We want to rebuild the house of God. There's all this opposition. And we've hardly been able to get started. And the enemy has come in. And we're we're stuck. Well, chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. So through the ministry of these two prophets, God stirred in the hearts of the people to build the house of God, despite the opposition. And sometimes we need just to be stirred up to get building again after opposition and discouragement that we need we need something to come along and give us a word that will encourage us to, to get building again. And so they, they begin to build. And the prophets build with them. And, and so the two principal leaders of this building project are mentioned here. Zerubbabel, he's the governor. He's one that takes the initiative And the other one is this man, Joshua, the high priest. So the high priest and the governor are kind of the leaders, along with the prophets, in rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. Now, along comes these prophets, Zechariah. And notice, uh, as we we think of Zechariah's ministry, uh, Zechariah and Haggai, their ministry was very different. Haggai was really blunt. He was, he was a straight talker. He's the older guy, I guess, so, so he can be really blunt. And, and he's saying, you, you are living in fancy houses. So when they got back, one of the first things they did was they did their own houses. And they've got paneled houses, and the houses look great, and the house of God is still in ruins. And what he said is, your priorities are all wrong. You're putting your house above God's house. And that happens often, doesn't it? House of God gets neglected. And so there's a rebuke from the older prophet. On the other hand, Zechariah, his ministry is is younger and it's much more encouraging. And so we're jumping in now in chapter 3 and we're going to see some encouragement that Zechariah is going to give to the two leaders. Now all the way through the book, up to now he's been encouraging. He's been encouraging the nation as a whole in chapters 1 and 2. To to build. God is with you again. Uh, He was against you, but He's now with you. He's moving on your behalf. And so He's encouraging them that God is at work. God is moving with you, and so you can build. But now He wants to encourage the leaders. Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. And the reason He needs to do that is that leaders need to be encouraged as well. Right? The people in, in leadership roles sometimes get discouraged. And God recognizes that and he knows exactly when those in a leadership role need a word of encouragement. And that's good to know that, isn't it? We're all the same. We all need encouragement. Everybody, I don't care who we are in this room, you need encouragement at some point. Whether you're in a leadership role or whether you're just a, a, a humble servant of God, it doesn't make any difference. You need to be encouraged. And so Zechariah recognizes that. So he begins uh, as God moves through his spirit to, to use him to encourage these men. Now, when we come to Joshua the high priest, one of the 
the things about this chapter designed to encourage him is is the fact that when he begins to when the temple is built of course the most important person once the temple is built is the high priest but the accuser of the brethren Satan is going to be giving some nasty accusations and what he's going to say basically is this Joshua you can't minister as a high priest because you're a dirty man that's what he's going to say and so how's God going to handle that how's he going to be encouraged to serve the Lord with, 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 with the enemy the accuser whispering in his ear you can't serve as a high priest you're too dirty how could God use a man like you and that's what the accuser loves to do doesn't it? Uh, he loves to say to us you're not fit to serve God I know things about you that you should never be doing what you're doing and so this is very real because we've all experienced this I'm sure at some point or another we've heard the accuser roar and we've heard him say these things so this is what this chapter is about and it's about the cleansing and the clothing and the crowning of Joshua the high priest right the the cleansing God's going to clean him from all the sins that he's been accused of he's going to be cleansed cleansing of the high priest the clothing of the high priest garments put upon him new garments the crowning of the high priest of mitre put upon his head all of these things are going to be done to this man and so this is God's encouragement to him but it's more than just to him because you see the high priest in Israel not only as an individual but he also was a representative of the entire nation wasn't he like the high priest when we read in Hebrews when the high priest went into the holiest of all he went in first of all he had to deal with his own sins but he also went in to deal with sins of the people so he was a representative priest wasn't he but the priests are always representative now let me just say this I'm going to get sidetracked here for a little bit but in the New Testament every believer is a priest 1 Peter 2 verse 5 tells us that we are a holy priesthood Every, now that's male and female every believer is a priest it's wonderful so one of the great truths of the New Testament is that there's no select class of priesthood now every Christian is a priest unto God that's a wonderful thing isn't it to, to be a priest I grew up Roman Catholic and, and I can remember uh, wanting to be a priest at one time uh, in fact I even had a cardboard box in my bedroom and I had a white cloth on top of it and a little missile and I used to pretend that I was a priest I don't have to pretend anymore I don't have to the cassock and all the rest of it but I'm a, a New Testament priest based on scripture that's exactly what because I'm a believer I'm a priest so it's a wonderful thing and so every believer is a priest and that means that we can go into the presence of God and of course one of the great privileges uh, for us is to, to be able to go into the presence of God on behalf of others and we can all do that to the throne of grace anytime we want isn't that wonderful uh, to be able to do those things so the high priest goes in and as a representative of others and Joshua the high priest represents the nation he's a, a representative of the people he goes in on behalf of them and the, the land of Israel in this book actually uh, look at chapter 2 verse 12 of Zechariah you're going to find some very interesting things about Zechariah I don't know how familiar you are with the book but some very interesting things it says in verse 12 uh, of chapter 2 it says the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again. We often talk about the Holy Land, but this is where we get it from in the Bible, the book of Zechariah. But the problem is that the Holy Land hasn't been very holy. At this time this book has been written, the Holy Land had been emptied for 70 years because the people were very unholy. 
the idea of holy land is that it's a land that's been set apart for God. It's his real estate. You know, we often debate, who does the land belong to? It belongs to God. It's his land. And, and he can give to it whoever he wants. But he wants it to be a land that is, is fitting for him. And Israel had certainly made it a, a very dirty land. Uh, so much so that the land had vomited uh, them out. So now they, they, they come back into this land. And if the high priest is a dirty man. And remember he's, he spent all his life up to now in Babylon. You think Babylon had any influence on Joshua the high priest? He's living in the place. You can guarantee it had an impact on him. So you've got a dirty man, and he's representing a dirty people. Because they've all come back from Babylon, and its influence has had an effect upon them in some way or another. And so the idea is this, that what God is going to do in this chapter for the high priest is a representation of what he's going to do for the whole nation. And in fact, we saw that, didn't we, in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, he says in verse 9, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I'll engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And so what we're going to see here is this. How God cleanses this high priest is a picture of what he's going to do one day for the whole nation. How he's going to clean Joshua, the high priest, is exactly how he's going to do it for the whole nation. So that they really will be a holy people living in a holy land. Because they're cleansed, you see. And so actually it's a, it's a lovely, uh, in the Old Testament, this, is, this chapter is one of the clearest chapters that shows us God's plan of salvation. The gospel. It's clear in this chapter how a sinner is cleansed from his sin. One of the clearest and complete pictures of the way of salvation in the Old Testament. And also, it's one of the chapters in the Old Testament that teaches us a lot about Satan and his activity. And so it's kind of interesting that in this seemingly, you know, we tend to think of these minor prophets uh, as kind of obscure Old Testament books. But I'll tell you the truth in this chapter, it's not obscure. It's really clear. It's a really amazing chapter. So it's so clear in this chapter that Zechariah doesn't ask any questions. Now, the reason I say that is, up to now, he's been given visions. These early chapters are visions that that are are given to the prophet Zechariah. And one thing about this young man that is very uh, encouraging to me is that he's always asking questions. Uh, And and it's lovely. I've been doing a a study on on Thursday nights on Zoom with, with a group of young men. And I just love it because they're full of questions, good questions, biblical questions. They want answers. And it's a joy to have people that that have got good questions. But sometimes the truth is so obvious to ask a question is just dumb, right? When we get to chapter 3, it's so clear there's no questions asked. Zechariah gets it. Let me just show you how he's asking questions. Uh, So, for instance, chapter 1, verse 9. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? He's been shown visions and he's asking questions. What are these? This is Zechariah 1 verse 9. Uh, Zechariah 1 verse 19. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? Uh, Verse uh, 21. Then said I, What come these to do? Uh, Chapter 2 verse 2. Then said I, Whither goest thou? Uh, In other words, this this guy is absolutely full of questions. But when he gets to chapter 3, he he doesn't have any questions. Even in chapter 4, he gets some questions. Uh, chapter 4 verse 4 so I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me saying what are these my lord verse 11 then answered I and said unto him what are these two olive trees Uh, verse 12 then I answered again and said unto him what be these two olive branches Uh, chapter 5 verse 10 then said I to the angel that talked with me whither do these bear the ephah I guess you get the message right we could just go on through the whole book but but all the way through the book he's asking questions but chapter 3 no questions asked. It's so clear what's going on. And it's wonderful when there's such clarity 
that there's no questions. So what are we going to look at in this particular chapter? Well, we're going to look at it this way. We're going to see several clear things that the Lord does for Joshua on his behalf. In verse 2, the first thing that the Lord is going to do for Joshua the high priest is going to rebuke the accuser for him. He rebukes Satan. And then he's going to restore the priesthood in verse 5 by by cleansing the priest and dressing him up and getting him ready to function as priest. And then as we've already seen in verse 9, he's going to remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So let's dive into chapter 3 with that kind of introductory background. It says this, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So the first thing we notice is this phrase uh, that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before. Now when we see that phrase standing before, it has the idea of standing before to minister. It's like a, it's like a priestly activity. It's standing before in order to act as a priest. So let me give you some examples uh, from scripture that would prove that. Uh, look for instance at Deuteronomy book of Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8 regarding this idea of standing before. This is a clear one. There are many others we could look at uh, and the idea is that he's about to minister or serve in some capacity and so it says in chapter uh, 10 of Deuteronomy and verse 8, at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord to minister unto him and to bless in his name unto this day. So you get the idea. To stand before the Lord is to minister to him. Uh, it's, it's this kind of role uh, that is given in service. Uh, let's look at another one. Second uh, Chronicles 29. And there, there are others we could look at. But we're just for the sake of time. Pick a couple. Second Chronicles 29 and verse 11. says my sons be not negligent for the Lord hath chosen you this is a, a message again to the uh, the Levites and the, 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 the uh, those that minister in the sanctuary my sons be not now negligent for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him to serve him and that you should minister unto him and burn incense so it's the idea uh, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now this angel of the Lord, we need to, I guess, identify the angel of the Lord here. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament, what we call a, a Christophany or a Theophany. Okay, It's an Old Testament revelation of God and particularly God the Son. Okay, Usually that's what's in view. And so here's the high priest, he's coming to minister before God. And when he moves forward to minister before God, then what happens? It says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now, right, right hand usually has the idea of strength, right? So the idea is this. He's a strong enemy. Satan's standing at his right hand and he's got one thing in view. Resist the work of the high priest. How is he going to do that? What's his plan? How is he going to resist the work of the high priest? So, I want you to notice that, just a kind of an observation, that throughout this particular incident, Joshua himself remains entirely passive. Everything that's going to happen to Joshua is going to be done for him by the Lord. He's going to rebuke Satan. He's going to remove his filthy garments. He's going to clothe him with new garments. right? And, and, and so, in a sense, what we could say is this, that when it comes to our salvation, because we are all filthy men to begin with, the, salvation is a work that's done for us by someone else. right? Christ died for us. Christ did the work. 
Nothing we did contributed to it. All we did is by faith accept what he had done for us, right? It was, it was passive on our part. And it's good to recognize that, uh, that the gospel, what an, an illustration of the gospel. We can't do anything to earn it or contribute to it. It's all of grace. It's all what someone else does on our behalf. And we're certainly going to see that in the salvation of this individual. Uh, we see it in Joshua the high priest very clearly and we'll see it in the nation of Israel when God removes the iniquity of that land in one day see that's Israel's problem they're always going about to establish their own righteousness and they're not submitting to the righteousness of God and so they're trying to do it themselves and to get saved you've got to come to that point where you say I can't do it myself nothing I can do to save myself right do you ever get to that place? I hope you go to that place. Right? I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. Unless God does the work through the finished work of Christ, I'm sunk. And so we see that picture here. But notice Satan standing at his right hand, that position of strength and power. And we recognize he's a powerful being and a powerful enemy. And he's seeking to resist him. Now how would he do that? Well, it's clear from the context that he's emphasizing how dirty the high priest is. And that's what Satan... You see, in Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Right? That's, that's his name. That's what he's called, the accuser of the brethren. And so what, what do you say is, you, you have no right to minister in the sanctuary of God. I know all about you. You are a very dirty man. And I think he does that to us sometimes. He, he, he tells us, and he tells us things, and it's interesting, when Satan talks to us about God, he always lies. But when he talks to God about us, he tells the truth. Now think about that. It's a profound statement, but it's true. When Satan talks to us about God, he lies. He's the liar. He's the father of lies. And he's always wanting to misrepresent God. Right in the, in the Garden of Eden, what is he trying to do? Misrepresent God. As if God's withheld something from you. This, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I mean... You know, God knows that if you eat this, you're going to be just like him. He, he's, he's leaving you out here. And so Satan, when he talks to us, he loves to lie about God and misrepresent his character. On the other hand, when he talks to, about, to God about us, he tells the truth. And it is true. We're all sinners. Even since we've been saved. Even since we've been saved, there's things we've done and Satan knows them and he loves to remind us of them. Lord doesn't want to remind us of them. In fact, one of the things about taking the Lord's Supper every week, when you take that cup, it's, it's the cup is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And the new covenant says this, your sins and your iniquities, God says, I will remember them no more. He's not going to remember. But Satan doesn't want you ever to forget them. And he wants you to feel so lousy that you're such a rotten sinner that you have no right to speak or do anything for God. And so that's how he is. He's the, he's the accuser. The, the word Satan means that adversary, the enemy of God and his people. It's significant to note, by the way, in terms of practical application, that it's only when Joshua draws near to minister that Satan comes and begins his whispering campaign. You see, if, if we're not interested in drawing near to God, Satan's not interested in bothering us. But the minute you get serious about intimacy with God, about getting close to God, about enjoying communion with God, that's when the enemy will step in. Because... Because while you're just kind of doing your own thing and not really serious about an intimate walk with God, you're not a threat to Satan. 
But the minute you want an intimate relationship with the Lord, drawing close and enjoying His communion, that's when Satan will step in and begin to accuse. And so, he's resisting literally to play the adversary, is what it means. And his accusations, no doubt, seem airtight. Because we see in verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. <laughs> and so we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but it, it's, it, there's nothing he can say in his defense. He's dirty. His garments are defiled garments. And so everything he's saying is true. Except for one thing. And that one thing is the grace of God that cleanses the foulest sinner. We are all dirty. Don't you love that hymn? His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? And so, so here's this situation. His accusations seem to be an airtight case except for the marvelous grace of God. And so here he is, he's accusing, he's the accuser. And by the way, uh, we talked in, down in Fargo, we were speaking on the book of Titus, and we talked about the older women, and that they be not slanderers, <laughs> and uh, the word there are false accusers, and the word there is, they be not diabolos, they be not little devils. In other words, the devil doesn't need our help in accusing the brethren, because he's doing a pretty good job himself and he doesn't need assistance so let's not help him in his work so <clears throat> a false falsely accusing although what he's saying is really true but it's not taken into account the, the grace of God so, so why is it the timing of this well Joshua is, is God is about to reestablish the priesthood again because the temple is going to be built and we're going to need a functioning priesthood and Satan the accuser is doing everything in his power to object to what God is about to do. And so he says the sins of the priesthood render the priests unworthy and unfit to honor serving God. And so it says in verse 2 the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Or plucked out of the fire? Is that not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And again, what, what wonderful gospel application that every one of us if we're really honest, that's what we are. We're, we're, we're brands that have been plucked out of the fire. We were headed to the hottest hell, and by his marvelous grace, he has plucked us out of that. But contextually, at least uh, here, the, the thought is that God has delivered this man from the captivity in Babylon. Because sometimes the, the captivity of the children of Israel is seen in terms of an, an iron furnace. And, and so let's just look at a couple of references to that. The book of Amos, another one of these minor prophets, which are always hard to find. Somebody's stolen the one out of my Bible here. Here it is. Amos chapter 4, verse 11. It says this. <clears throat> I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. So again, it's, it's this idea of firebrand plucked out of the burning, but again, it's connected with the captivity. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, 
to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are at this day. And so it's kind of the idea is that time in Babylon, the time that was spent in Egypt was considered to be an iron furnace. And God is saying, I brought them out. But of course, we don't want to take away from the gospel application that God has brought us to be brands plucked out of the burning. So notice then he says, <clears throat> concerning this, uh, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So we've got to look at this. This is this is the picture of Joshua. This is this is why Satan can accuse, because here's a, a high priest and he's 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 drawing near to the Lord and yet he's wearing these filthy garments. Now it's a very strong descriptive term and it literally means excrement covered. It's not a very pleasant word. Uh, not a pleasant thing at all. Uh, but that's the literal meaning of it. Standing before God covered in this filth. Now, <clears throat> many years ago, in my New Tribes mission days, um, we, when we were in language school in Missouri, of all places, uh, one of the things that we had to do in the New Tribes language school is, in order to keep the cost down, we had to do work detail. We had to, we had to work in the afternoons on maintaining the properties and all that kind of stuff. And so, in their wisdom, new tribes put me on the plumbing crew. Now, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, uh, that's the worst place to put me. I'm, I am so unpractical. So they put me on the plumbing crew, and one day, we had a series of what we called pickle ponds. It was kind of the whole sewage plant thing that, that dealt with all the camp. And so, there was a, a filter in the middle of this pickle pond, and it had rusted out, and it needed replacing. So they sent me in another guy on a rowing boat on a pickle pond. It's not as pleasant as it sounds, you know. <laughs> you know, the rowing boat, you get this picture, you know, kind of going down the Thames in England or something. This was not like that. And so, so anyway, we get to it, and, and so we're leaning over the boat trying to get this rusty old filter off. Of course, the problem with practical jobs is nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to go. Everything's stuck, everything, and of course it's stuck. And being the junior member of the team, my boss said, it's no good, you'll have to get out of the boat to get some leverage on it. So I have to go over the side into the pickle pond. <laughs> so I'm up to here, you know, trying to find footing on the ground, and finally got, we got the job done. But we got back to, we got, we got back to the house, and... Um, my wife took one look at me and said, you are not coming in here <laughs> like that. <laughs> because I was literally just like Joshua, covered in this kind of garment. It had to go. <laughs> and so you get the idea. And it's kind of interesting how often in the Word of God, you, you have these, these graphic pictures. Because how should the high priest have come into the presence of God? Well, he should have been wearing garments of glory and beauty, right? And, and he's covered in filth. And again, how can anybody draw near to God and serve him acceptably if he's that dirty? Because God is a holy God. And so, and we've had this all through the scriptures, these, this idea of garments. Adam and Eve, they were... They were aware after they had sinned of their nakedness and shame. And they wanted to cover up. And so what did they do? Well, they used, they used fig leaves of their own imaginations to try and cover up their filth. But God says there's really only one way for somebody to be clean, and that has to be blood. And so he takes two animals. First, death, physical death in the garden or in, in, in time is these two animals. There's a spiritual death but now a physical death. These animals are killed and their skin is removed and they're they used to clothe Adam and Eve. 
And so again, showing the high price that has to be paid to cover up our filthiness. But let's go a step further. I want you to look at a couple of scriptures. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. Just this idea of garments and cleansing. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says this. It says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And so what does he say? Even all our righteousnesses. In other words, even when we're trying to be a self-righteous person, it's like bringing filthy rags before a holy God. All of them, all the sum total of our, our righteous deeds as an unsaved person brought before God is like, is like filthy rags being waved before him. Isaiah 61.10 God's remedy is always to remove those filthy garments and replace them with new garments. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels with the jewels what a beautiful thing he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation taken away the filthy rags clothed me with the garments of salvation and of course we're very familiar with that remember the story of the prodigal son prodigal son he's been working with pigs and he comes to the end of himself and he says I'm going back I'm going back to the father's house and, and I don't know whether the father could smell him before he could see him but he's been he, you know he, he's, so he's come to a far country and he's come back again having been in the pig pen and he's taken this long journey and he didn't have any money for a hotel room or get showered or cleaned up he comes back dirty and what does the father do? he takes off those garments and he brings the best robe and puts it on him doesn't he? And so that beautiful picture, we see it again and again. And of course, the most beautiful New Testament application is in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Where we read this, it says, For he hath made him, the Lord Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, in him and so the idea is this that God took all of our dirt and all of our filth and put it on his son the one who knew no sin made to be sin for us the filth is put on him and then the righteousness of God is put on us and we get clothed in new garments beautiful garments garments of salvation wonderful garments and so that's exactly what God does here uh, Joshua's clothed in filthy garments he stood before the angel he answered and spake unto those verse 4 this is back in Zechariah 3 he answered and spoke to those that stood before him saying take away the filthy garments from him and unto him he said behold I have caused and this is why we know this is talking about sin not just dirt but real sin and he said to him behold I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with change of raiment so the filthy garments are replaced and what are they replaced with well we get a clue because the very next verse said he said let them set a fair mitre upon his head so they set a fair mitre upon his head and the mitre was the high priest's head piece you know that he wore and so the idea is this that he's clothing him again but he's clothing him with priestly garments and so he's replaced these filthy garments with new garments of privileged priestly service. And that's the wonderful thing. That not only does the Lord clean us up, but he also puts us into service. That's why Paul could never get over it. 
uh, he, he, he keeps talking about this in his, his letters that he, he, he you know that that he counted me worthy putting me in the ministry I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing that he'd even saved me but actually wants me on his team I can't get I can't get my head around that and that's exactly what we've got here Joshua the high priest I'm going to clean you up of all your filth and I'm going to put God, priestly garments on you and you're going to serve me that's a wonderful thing isn't it and the placing of this this mitre or turban or whatever your translation says is very significant because on the front of the high priest mitre was a gold plate and on that gold plate it said these words holiness unto the Lord now why do you think that it was on the headpiece that it said holiness to the Lord and not across the chest could it be that much of our problem with dirt emanates here in the mind right as a man thinketh in his heart so is he and really what he's saying is this if you're going to be a holy priest you have to have a holy mind the mind must be devoted to God if it's if it's always looking at filth and thinking about filth and meditating on filth, you're always going to be a dirty man. Always. So what do we think about? You see? The thought life. I believe that our thought life is the key to our spiritual victory. What we think about is what we are. And so... He, he places this turban, holiness to the Lord. That's what he wants him to be, uh, a, a holy priest. This fair mitre, this pure, in contrast to the filthy. And to change the mind. That's why scripture emphasizes so much about renewing the mind. Just the washing of the water of the word, renewing the mind. And so this is what the Lord does for him. But then he, he goes on in verse 6 and he says, The angel of the Lord protested to Joshua saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. And so what he's doing is this, after he protests, uh, uh, he's solemnly testifying, warning or charging Joshua. And what he's saying is this, that after a person is cleansed and restored, He's now responsible to continue to walk before God. And so again, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, if you will walk in my ways. In other words, the reason that I've cleansed you, the reason that I've taken away your filth, the reason why I've clothed you is, I want you now to be responsible to walk in my ways. To walk in my ways. And what we could say is this, that he who, who is a forgiven man should be a faithful man. Right? He who is a forgiven man should be a faithful man. Because, for, for what reason? Because of love. Because of what the Lord's done for me, right? Who, the, the one that is forgiven much loves much. And because the Lord has done so much to clean me up, and take away our iniquity and remove it from us and clothe us with his garments of righteousness, the, the response should be, I want to walk to please this God. I want to walk in a way that's well-pleasing in his sight. So he says, walk in my ways, not in your own ways anymore. Walk in my ways. And so he tells him to do this, to walk in his ways. And thou shalt keep my charge, and thou shalt judge my house. And so he's going to give him responsibility in the house. Give him the, the service opportunities in the house of God. Keeping charge of the house of God. Watching over all of these things he's been given. Great responsibilities that he's been given as a result of his forgiveness. And then the final section, verses 8 through 10. And then we're going to bring it home and apply it to our situation here. Verse 8 through 10. The cleansing of the land hear now O Joshua the high priest 
thou and thy fellows that sit before thee for they are men wondered at or literally men of sign in other words Joshua and the priests that are now cleansed they're kind of a sign they're a picture what God has done for them he's going to do for the whole nation so, so it's kind of like a little kind of picture that God is showing he's, he, what he's done for them he's going to do for the entire nation of Israel and of course that's the climax isn't it that he's going to cleanse the iniquity of that remove the iniquity of that land in one day and so they're men of sign so the, again we get to the big question how can God do that to guilty sinners how can he possibly cleanse us and still be righteous and so he says here now verse 8 O Joshua the high priest thou and thy fellows that sit before thee for they are men wondered at for behold I'll bring forth my servant the branch so it's only because what God is going to do in bringing forth his servant now we know who his servant is right the servant songs of the book of Isaiah four servant songs Uh, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus and he's also the branch out of the corrupt house of David a branch is going to come forth a branch of righteousness this branch is going to do the work of cleansing Israel and of cleansing every sinner because he is the only one that can possibly do that that branch Christ the fruit of the nation that sprout that branch that came up from the the house of David and it's interesting that there are references to the branch in different portions of the word of God the branch of righteousness in Jeremiah the branch my servant the branch here uh, the man whose name is the branch chapter 6 and verse 12 speaking of the humanity of the Lord Jesus speak unto him saying thus speak of the Lord of hosts saying behold the man whose name is the branch he shall grow up out of his place he shall build the temple of the Lord again looking forward to the Lord Jesus the man whose name is the branch and then Isaiah 4 2 talks about the branch of Jehovah and then he goes on and he talks about a stone for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes Uh, and so this is kind of an unusual stone and I will engrave the graving thereof of course Christ is the foundation stone of the nation isn't he he is that stone that the builders rejected that's become the head of the corner he's the chief cornerstone he's the stone of stumbling he's the rejected stone he's the smiting stone He's he's the smitten stone and so the idea is this that all of this cleansing can only come through one person and one person alone and that's the Lord Jesus he's the only one that can cleanse I was thinking yesterday that the Lord's Supper and uh, the, the thought started out was about the worthiness of Christ we have a worthy saviour I was thinking he's the only saviour because every other person born into the world needed a saviour he is the only Savior. In fact, I was thinking of, of, of Mary and, and the so-called Magnificent and she, how she talks about uh, magnifying the Lord, the God, her Savior. Even she, blessed among women, very privileged. Every woman wanted to bring the Messiah into the world, but she also acknowledged God, my Savior. And so what we say is that he is the only Savior of sinners. And so... <clears throat> The final verse of chapter 3 is a little glimpse of a cleansed Israel in the land in the, the coming millennial days of bliss. It says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And again, these statements seem a little bit obscure until you check Scripture with Scripture. And then you find that this is a picture of peace and prosperity and safety. A guy has not gone to war. He's, he's under his vine and under his fig tree. He's enjoying the riches of his labors and just enjoying peaceful conditions. And the first time it's mentioned is in 1 Kings. Now, I want just to look there. Uh, this is a, a foreshadowing of what millennial days will look like. For the nation of Israel, when they're finally cleansed from all their sin. 1 Kings 4 verse 25. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine, 
and under his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Right? That's 1 Kings 4.25. It's an image of peace and security. During David's reign, what's going on? There's war after war after war, right? They're always fighting somebody. The Philistines, or they're going into the Edomites, or they're, they're fighting constantly. But Solomon's reign was a reign of peace. And so it's described in these terms. Every man under his vine, every man under his fig tree. And so the picture is this. That because of the work of Christ, the nation of Israel, in a coming day, are going to enjoy incredible peace and safety. Is that today? Do you think Israel had a safe day today? Do you think any rockets might have gone into Israel today? They go in every single day, don't they? But there's coming a day. And who's going to bring that day about? The Lord Jesus. The Messiah is going to bring that day about. So, pulling this all together now for you and I. What's this got to do with you and I? Well, if we, if we want to build for God. See, this is all about a people who want to build for God. They, they, the foundations laid, but they want to build on it. They want to, they want to finish the temple. They want to get the work moving. But there's an obstacle. And that is this. God can't use dirty priests to do His work. If we want to see a reviving work of God, we must be serious about holiness. About cleansing. About making sure that we're not dirty priests. Because God's not going to bless that. And the accuser's going to love that because he's going to say, God can't use you because you're a dirty man. And so what do we do? Well, in the New Testament context, what do we do? When we're conscious of our sinfulness, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is going to tie in even more so tomorrow night because what we're going to see in tomorrow night's message is this, that after cleansing comes fullness and power. The vessel's got to be clean, but once it's clean, it can be filled and empowered for service. Chapter 4, we're going to see about the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit must have clean vessels to work with. And so it's good to ask ourselves, are we serious about personal holiness? Are we serious about our thought life? Are we wearing the mitre, holding us unto the Lord? Are we thinking thoughts that are pure, that are holy, that are righteous? Right? Is that, is that our mindset? Are, are we living that kind of, are we Are we conscious of, of how sin robs me of intimacy with the Lord? I, I draw near and the accuser comes and says, no, you can't do that. If I'm, if I'm not serious about my sin and dealing with it, intimacy will be lost. And most of all, usefulness will be lost. This vision is an encouragement because if we're going to build the temple, he's saying to, to Joshua and Zerubbabel, if we're going to build the temple, we're going to have to put the priesthood back in action again. And we have to have clean priests. And we have to silence the accuser. And the only thing that silences him is, of course, the wonderful work of Christ on our behalf. That's what silences him. The Lord rebuke you. And so, may the Lord encourage us to think about holiness. I really believe that it's a subject that we don't talk about enough. Holy living. Usually, in revival times, there's a great consciousness of sin and a great desire for holiness. To be cleaned. Oh, to be clean in the presence of God. To draw near and to be clean. And of course, the accuser, he roars and he will roar, but we have to remind him that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. 
Let's pray. Father, we do just continue to ask that you'd help us to move forward in the work of God, but to be very conscious of the need of personal holiness as a way of life, as a way of thinking. Lord, help us to be those. Well, you said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We desire intimacy. Father, we recognize without purity, we won't enjoy intimacy. So we pray for this, Lord. Pray that people will be serious about holy living. Thank you for the gospel that can make the foulest clean. But Father, we're thankful for the ongoing cleansing work as well. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We bless thee for these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.